Hi, I'm Mark Olson. I write about movies for the Los Angeles Times, and I'm joined here today by my colleagues, Justin Chang and Jen Yamada. And the Isle of Dogs is the new film by Wes Anderson, and it won Wes the Best Director Prize when it recently premiered at the Berlin International Film Festival. And it comes on the heels of his previous film, The Grand Budapest Hotel, which actually won four Academy Awards. And Wes himself is a, I think, six-time Academy Award nominee. And so his movies, every one of his new movies, is a real kind of event it's, and comes with a lot of expectations. And the movie, we're having this conversation on Monday morning. The film had a limited uh, release over the weekend, and it actually had the highest per screen average so far this year. And so I think Isle of Dogs is something of an event picture. And there's still much to be said about it. And um very happy that a movie made money. <laughs> and uh, so, but now I think from Justin, your review of the film, and then Jen, you kind of amplifying the conversation online. There's been a lot of talk that both of you in particular have been really involved in. And maybe we can sit, kind of get into both the movie itself and then some of the conversation that's grown around the movie. Maybe, Justin, maybe you can sort of like get us into it by talking a little bit about the movie. For sure. Uh, this is Wes Anderson's second stop-motion animated feature. Uh, the, the first one, of course, being 2009's Fantastic Mr. Fox. Which I quite enjoyed. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I rewatched it, actually, before seeing Isle of Dogs, and I wasn't a huge fan of it. it it's funny because it is, in some ways, Fantastic Mr. Fox is, like, the most critically beloved Wes Anderson movie. And I didn't love it at the time, but seeing it again, I think, for the third time, I understand ever more so why that's the case, because there's something about stop motion that sort of liberates his visual imagination. And and you do see that in Isle of Dogs as well, uh, where and in some ways he, Wes Anderson is such a control freak that a medium that requires you to manipulate everything in the frame inch by inch, like everything about the movie has to be worked out to an inch of its life, is ideally suited to his particular aesthetic. And there's um, a lot of humor in how he uses stop motion as well. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of humor. The, the, it's very well suited to his kind of bespoke whimsy and all of that. And and I think, too, there's something about Stephanie Zaharik actually wrote about this really beautifully when she was kind of a few years ago when she was grappling with why she didn't like Wes Anderson's movies except for Fantastic Mr. Fox. He has to work a little harder, I think, to get those puppets to display emotion, whereas humans just kind of become, you know, rather than humans becoming puppets, he's making puppets more human. And that's an ostensibly really cool sort of aesthetic premise for Isle of Dogs. And I love the dogs in the movie, I have to say. Justin, I mean, tell us what Isle of Dogs is about. Isle of Dogs is um, about an Isle of Dogs. It's also, as the title uh, tells you if you say it fast enough, it's a valentine to canine. It's set in uh, a fictional Japanese city called Megasaki City. Boy's name is Atari, one of the main characters, which is also has stirred some controversy because... But it's set in this fictional Japanese city, 20 years into the future. It's also, you know, which is another way of saying it's walled off in this parallel Wes Anderson universe where he can just kind of colonize it aesthetically as to his liking. Colonizer. <laughs> and over years, the kind of the powerful um, Kobayashi family, which uh, loves cats, has sort of been at war with the dog population. And so as the movie opens, all dogs have been, you know, diagnosed with this dog flu or snout fever and summarily kind of exiled to this floating waste dump that is called Trash Island. And so there's very much a movie, and there's a political dimension to this movie as well, um, a good one, I would say, where it's about these dogs kind of, you know, who have been oppressed, who have been uh, kind of slandered. It's an adventure story about how this boy comes and they, he teams up with these dogs, and they fight back, and they 
reclaim their proper place in society. It would be a lovely story if it wasn't just using Japan as a setting, using Japanese culture as window dressing. As the movie went on, I just started thinking, who are the people whose job it was over the many years that many, many people toiled away on this film and put in a lot of hard work? Who are the people who signed off on the character design of these Japanese faces and making them more Japanese-y and sometimes to comical effect? And then you look at the credits, and there are very few Asian people who worked on this movie. Because the actual animation was done where? In England? Remote. Yeah. yeah. Not in, <laughs> definitely not in Japan. Somewhere in the United Kingdom is where they made this movie. Maybe, Justin, maybe you can get into what you talked about in re- your review sure. as far as the elements of Japanese culture in the movie. Absolutely, and I, and I want to hear more from Jen about this, uh, too, because I have to say, giving the movie the benefit of the doubt, which I always try to do when I go into a theater, I, I think enjoyed, you're really good at that. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed a lot of the movie. I don't think this movie would be worth talking about or calling out if it were just a completely worthless sure. artistic achievement. I was sort of having kind of a devil's advocate kind of argument with somebody where it's like, Wes Anderson does make beautiful movies. It's like, who wouldn't want their culture appropriated by Wes Anderson? Or who wouldn't want, you know, that kind of stylizes and beautifies everything to this kind of insane degree. But I think that is problematic because it does treat these elements, beautiful as they are, as decorative. And I think it's worth, you know, because a lot of Jen and I have been sort of immersed in this online conversation to the extent that it's even been a conversation as opposed to just people screaming at us. Mm -hmm. People are sort of saying, you know, it's like, oh, are we forbidden from, you know, are white filmmakers forbidden from exploring a different culture? And it's like, no, not of course. First of all, who's talking about forbidding anyone? We're just commenting on this result that's come, this product that's come out of the pipeline. And there's a right way to do it. And, and there's a wrong way to do it. And there's a way to do it that's kind of somewhere in between. So I think that Wes Anderson clearly, you know, seems to be a Japanophile. He seems to have done his homework. He's talked about how this movie is a tribute to Akira Kurosawa, one of his favorite directors and one of a lot of people's favorite directors. Just aesthetically, he's sort of, you know, uh, hokusai paintings. And there's one direct reference that kind of is a joke on that. Everything is a joke. Everything (laughs) is a joke in this movie. There's like, there's pagoda architecture. There's a sushi meal being prepared in this, you know, lovely little bento box. And I was thinking, isn't that a perfect little cultural representation of like everything that wasn't, you know, this beautiful little thing where everything is just like neatly compartmentalized. It's like a diorama in Mm -hmm. itself. And part of me was sort of like, laughing to myself. I can see why Wes Anderson is thrilling to all of this, and yet it just feels so kind of empty. For me, it's like, it's not even so much the visual qualities of, you know, that I can almost, I I think that gets very blurry for me because the visual quality of the film is so striking. But what I really rubbed me the wrong way, and I've written about this in my review, is the way he treats language and the way the use of the Japanese language winds up treating the Japanese human characters in the movie in a sort of subordinate way, almost a subservient kind of way within their own narrative. Except it's not really their own narrative, as we realize. They're just kind of placeholders, and it's it's about the dogs. Sure. So about those dogs, they're adorable, which is why so many, I think, film critics love this movie, and so many of the reviews are like, oh, it's just, uh, who doesn't love dogs? Our collective love of puppers has blinded so many people to the deeper problematic issues with 
how the story is told, differing degrees of agency it gives to different characters based on race. And that is something that is baked into the DNA of how the story, I think, was written. I don't think any of us in this room or anyone else would argue that the aesthetics borrowed from Japanese culture and history and art are inauthentic seeming. They seem very authentic. It's very nice. You see like a snapshot of a sumo wrestling match. You see all these very Japanese visuals that do seem really authentic and maybe that will pique people's interest in learning more about those actual cultural signifiers. But the movie itself says nothing about Japanese culture. So my biggest question, uh, were I to, to have the opportunity to ask Wes Anderson about this movie, which at this point I kind of doubt will happen, is why Japan? Follow-up question, what gives you the right? But, you know, like both of those questions are are the ones that continue to swirl in my mind as people on the internet rise to his defense, I think inordinately, and certainly before thinking very deeply about the... Well, the idea that if you... I mean, I think it's been a big part of Anderson's filmmaking up until now, this sort of like tribute slash pastiche element. I mean, you look at... The Darjeeling Limited, which was set in India and sort of was had a lot of elements of Indian cinema to it. You look at uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which was set in Italy, had a lot of elements of Italian cinema. And even the way The Royal Tenenbaums is based sort of on this like American literary tradition of like the family story, something like Magnificent Ambersons. That what maybe is there something dis- do you think that's problematic in his filmmaking practice overall? Or is there something distinct because of, I think, especially this language and the use of specifically translation in this film is really where it's sort of grappling with this cultural issue and in some ways stumbling? Like, is that for you, Jen, where the biggest, like, what, like, what's wrong with this movie in particular, as opposed to sort of what Anderson's been doing in all of his movies? I think it's an extension of problems that many people have had with several of his movies, Darjeeling being probably the most obvious example. But in this particular case, I mean, I fully admit that being Japanese-American probably made me much more aware and more sensitive to how both Japanese people and customs in that world are presented and used, used and exploited for the story that he's telling that has nothing to do with them. So I, I think it's not the first time by far. I don't think any, even Wes Anderson fans would not deny that it's a thing that he continues to, to struggle with and seemingly does not care about. It, it kind of goes back to that issue I said about control. I think, you know, Wes Anderson is the auteur of his movies. I mean, one of the most, if not most influential American filmmakers of the past 20 years. Uh, it's like, and people love it because he's also a brilliant kind of disseminator of his own brand. I mean, his film, his genius is as much for branding as it is for filmmaking. I go really up and down with him and I, I want to say The Grand Budapest Hotel, his previous film before this one, was a real breakthrough for me. Like, I loved that movie in a way that I hadn't loved any of his other movies. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think this is relevant because people have asked, well, why don't you have a problem with him making a film set in this fictional Eastern European republic that is just as fancifully treated as Megasaki City is in Isle of Dogs. And I think that's well, because first off, you just watched that movie. I, I don't think you can deny that even however close Wes Anderson may be, you know, culturally or genetically to Eastern Europe, I don't know, actually. I, he's just at ease in that setting, in a way. Not only that, it's not just a style over substance movie. Like, every stylistic decision in that movie, to me, has thematic weight to it. There's a reason why he's, like, creating this beautiful, and it's kind of funny, and it's whimsical in all the same ways. He's actually using all of that to make a point about, this culture is under threat from fascism. You know, that movie is about, it's in the interwar period, it's World War II. It's like, 
there's a lot going on thematically in every cultural representation and depiction in that film. And I don't think you feel that in I Love Dogs. I do think that he's only drawing on it in a decorative way for the most part. And I also think, and this gets back to, you know, except for Fantastic Mr. Fox, which of course animation frees him to use to tell stories about animals. I think it's really interesting. It troubles me a little bit that in his second animal movie, this is the one where the animals have narrative priority, narrative agency. This is the one that he chooses to set in Japan. And I love dogs. I'm a dog lover. <laughs> I, people have asked me this. Do you just not like dogs? I'm like, no, I love dogs. I love movies. I love a movie that, is, love about, dogs. that is set from the perspective of talking dogs. I love that idea. But, but how are those characters, how are those human characters, those Japanese human characters being treated in the frame, in the background? Why is it that dogs are speaking or, you know, apparently being dubbed into English and Francis McDormand's interpreter character is speaking in English, talking over the Japanese dialogue, which then kind of becomes more of this effect, this kind of almost primitive, atavistic kind of sound that doesn't really signify any meaning in and of itself that affected the writing of the movie because I think the Japanese human characters were then reduced in their narrative function. I don't think they were allowed to really speak for themselves. And with that, we need to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Los Angeles is the epicenter of storytelling, and that's why the LA Times is adding to its beloved festival of books a set of experiences called New Story. I'm Clint Schaff, a VP at the LA Times, and I'm excited to bring New Story to the festival of books. Check out the lineup at latimes.com slash newstory. Discover creative storytelling beyond the book, podcasts, virtual reality, film, music, and more with conversations across five stages. Experience an immersive 360 dome along with interactive games, art, and music exhibits. Hear from 50 talented storytellers, including The Black Eyed Peas, Mayim Bialik, The Second City, Moby, and many, many more. Join us April 21st and 22nd at the University of Southern California to go beyond the book and to discover emerging forms of creative storytelling. Find out more at latimes.com slash newsstory. And we're back talking about uh, one of American cinema's number one problematic faves, Wes Anderson, and his new film, Isle of Dogs. Now, Jen, maybe you can talk just a little bit more about the actual sort of like depiction of Japanese characters in the movie and their sort of narrative use and how in many ways that really is where sort of like the, the stickiest, most difficult part of the, the movie. Sure. Uh, well, as Justin noted, and I think it's really smart to pull out the linguistic, artificial, deliberate linguistic barrier as uh, probably one of the most glaring examples of people are given preferential agency in this story. There are lots of Japanese characters in this. Lots of characters who are human, who are Japanese, who have Japanese faces, and are voiced by Japanese actors. Japanese actors such as Kunichi Nomura, one of the four credited screenwriters. Uh, Ken Watanabe, Yoko Ono, playing a character named Yoko Ono. Uh-huh. The problem is, uh, I mean, like, there are so few sympathetic Japanese humans, I think, are, are steered towards having more empathy for these dogs, which are clearly anthropomorphized to, to be, like, more American-leaning. They have names like Chief and Spots. They don't even look like Japanese dogs. They look like American, I don't know, like, breeds that are perhaps more uh, prevalent yes. in Japan. I mean, uh, we didn't put a spoiler warning on this, but I'm just going to say someone gets a doggy bath. And that dog bath turns him from black 
too white, white, blue-eyed, and then he he instantly becomes more sympathetic to the audience. He becomes a hero. That's a deliberate choice. So going back to your question about Japanese characters, um, yes, there are a lot of Japanese actors who voice Japanese characters who American audiences, the intended audience, the westernized audience, the English-speaking audience, uh, will not understand because they're given no opportunity to understand what those characters are saying. The argument could be made that the point is to show that there are ways to understand one another without needing translation, but then why translate the dogs? Why Then why the Frances McDormand character, who, by the way, I believe has, like, she's a translator character who speaks in Frances McDormand's voice. Frances McDormand, by the way, who called for inclusion writers I, on the Oscars stage. I would like to hear her on mm-hmm. this on this film. Um, and she, I believe her character has a, a westernized last name, but she has a definitely... Asian face. And that goes back to my point about the design of these characters. Every one of these choices, because it's a Wes Anderson film, we can say for sure, like above any other standard we might hold other filmmakers to, every choice has been deliberate. I want answers behind those choices. I I have so many questions for so many different people and no filmmakers so far involved in this, I think, has given any adequate explanation or justification for a lot of these problematic choices. And more problematically for me in my daily life, many other film critics beyond film critics and journalists who are Asian or Asian American, nobody else with few exceptions has bothered to make this a priority in the conversation. And that is a huge problem. I I have a bigger problem with film Twitter and film criticism turning a blind eye and saying, oh, aren't these puppies cute? Isn't it cute that that uh, Bill Murray is playing taiko drums? Oh well, let's get into that a little bit. I think that the you know in some ways this is similar to what I think sort of like the film criticism community went through recently with the film Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, where it premiered at this very upscale festival, the Venice Film Festival, and was so therefore you know initially grappled with and written about by. F- a very sort of like small and elite group of critics and they sort of like framed the conversation in a certain way and many of those critics were ones uh, were who did not grapple with sort of like the racial and political aspects of that movie and so it would, didn't become part of the initial talking points of the movie and I think with Isle of Dogs having just premiered at the Berlin Film Festival so it's a similar situation where a very small group of critics, a very specific group of critics wrote about it initially, didn't necessarily get into the issues of sort of representation and storytelling within the movie itself. And so as it's kind of like come to the world and as daily critics have gotten at the movie, uh, just more sort of like, you know, people online, people who may not have a specific like, you know, reviewing assignment, start talking about the movie, it sort of expands the conversation. And so just for the sort of like film criticism community in general, that's trying, I think, to grapple with some of these bigger issues now where does that sort of put it like because um you will watch that i'm quite carefully not using the word backlash which is like something that became an issue with three billboards and i think with isle of dogs i don't i don't think isle of dogs is going through any kind of backlash in us having this conversation no because this is the conversation the, here's the reason why is because media diversity is something that nobody also talks about and that needs to be talked about when it comes to film criticism there's so few Asian critics or critics working at mainstream outlets or or critics on staff 
as either film critics or reporters at mainstream outlets who are of Asian descent that might have had these problems, might have flagged these problems in as nuanced a way as Justin did. Look at writers like Angie Han, who wrote a really great in-depth and even-handed review at Mashable. Ingu Kang on Twitter. So many other, I think, Asian-American film writers have, in the last few days, opening weekend, joined in this conversation and propelled it forward because nobody else outside the Asian-American film community has bothered to care. And that is a huge problem, and that is because media and film criticism is not diverse. I was racking my brain on Thursday to try to recommend other writers, film writers, film critics, journalists of Asian descent, of Japanese descent, to recommend to editors to to write pieces on Isle of Dogs. Aside from myself, I can only think of one of specifically Japanese descent. That is exactly why we are not hearing as loud an outcry over Isle of Dogs or like Ghost in the Shell from non-Asian writers because they're... It's so frustrating. It would be nice if... I mean, I echo times a thousand Jen's plea for more Asian and Asian American critics and um, and more critics of every color yes. and background and yeah. race and religion and sexual orientation and, and what have you. Um, it would also be nice, though, if one did not have to be an Asian or an Asian yes. American to be sensitive to these issues, right? Which is not yeah. what I'm saying. I'm not saying only <laughs> yeah. Asian critics can like, see this or identify it or write about it. But those are the people that whose shoulders it has been that left. That burden of responsibility falls yes. on ours. And by the way, I mean, it's so funny. I mean, I think both Jen and I are aware that the the intensity of the kind of reaction to us and people, you know, who clearly did not read my review, which is still scored fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, it is by the a, way. It is a very evenly even, you know, positive maybe, review. Maybe even handed to a fault. Sometimes, you know, we, you know it's, it's very tricky to parse one's feelings on this. I like a lot of the movie, and I think... Um, and I dislike a lot of it, too. Um, but it's interesting how even a piece that I think I can say is as mixed and measured as mine is gets greeted as if we're rocking the boat in some really, you know, uh, like we're, you know, we're like we're throwing, you know, grenades or something. It's like not even like this conversation has barely begun. This well, is here, like, yeah. Um, and it's it, I, I would say this, too, and I have mixed feelings on this because as a former trade critic at Variety, I was, you know, what Mark was saying about. The festival reaction and the kind of the process of a film's reception and, you know, whether this is the first wave or is this the backlash or which which wave are we on? Um, I used to be on the first wave. And I understand that, you know, when you're first reviewing the movie, you know, you're just trying to tell people what this movie is, you know. And so um, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be. No, I, I wish that more pe- more of the reaction out of Berlin had perhaps addressed it. But they did a lot of I think a lot of critics did say, like, you know. This is, you know, a lot of the trade react, you know, I'm, I, as, a, as a variety critic, I know because I used to write these things. It's like, this is going to upset some people. I'm not going to necessarily take a firm stand one way or another. But even acknowledgement is helpful, right? Even just like being aware of it. And then it perhaps falls to daily critics and, and, and you know, or quarterly critics or whatever to cr- shape something that is not so much a comprehensive overview, but a more, you know, um, a more analytical piece or something that is a little more slanted, perhaps. Well, look, even in, especially in the wake of something like Black Panther, which was such a universally, a universal win, you know, across communities, uh, I was shocked that it took so long to get the film 
critic community engaged in even talking about this this aspect of I Love Dogs. It took till opening weekend. And it took people like us to, like, be loud, which is something that I've been criticized for on Twitter, for being too loud about this. I mean, come on. Nobody else is being loud, so that's why I have to be loud. I would gladly shout a little more softly if there are other voices. Justin, I am fascinated by the fact that, as you pointed out, your movie, your review is rated as fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which ostensibly in sort of like the yes-no world is yes. And so with a movie like this, what do, when you try to get into like what's problematic about it or really grappling with the movie, do you feel like, and Jen, I think <clears throat> this is where some of the controversy comes from, people interpret that as you saying, do not see this movie, this movie should not exist, no, no, no. And I don't necessarily think that's even what you're you're right. saying. And so the I think I'm really interested in the idea of like what is the fireable offense? Like at what point do we like vote a movie off the island? Oh, I vote this movie onto trash island. <laughs> a thousand percent. And uh a lot of people along with it who who very I don't know, in their ignorance or in their silence are part of the problem, in my opinion. Um, I think that having fielded many, many very dumb, very wrong hot takes in response to to my criticism um, in the last few days, um, the idea that what I'm saying is that white filmmakers are not allowed to set stories in Japan or are not allowed to pay homage to people like to filmmakers that inspired them like Kurosawa from other cultures that's like nobody's saying that I'm just saying if you're going to do that make sure that you are doing it right and that you have a compelling reason I think that's I don't think it's unfair to say I don't think that's an unfair thing to ask I think you should have a compelling reason for most all of your artistic decisions yeah you know, whether, especially you know. if you're using another culture to tell your story and I emphasize the word using um, I'm one of the I, I, I know a lot of people also point to Nomura as one of the four screenwriters as evidence that see it's not cultural appropriation it can't possibly be he had a Japanese guy helping him um, I reject that uh, based on I mean if you read I've only read I've not had the chance to talk to Nomura nor have I had the chance to talk to Wes Anderson or Greta Gerwig or Scarlett Johansson or Tilda Swinton about their decision to, to be a part of this movie. But Nomura told Deadline, for example, um, that his involvement in the film as a writer was sort of to focus more on making sure that the dialogue, the Japanese dialogue and the look and feel of the film felt accurate to Japanese culture. To me, that sounds like he was more like the, the Japanese consultant. Uh, it has nothing to indicate that he had any input into the story or how Japanese characters were used to tell that story or any of the actual problems that we have with this film. Well, to me, I think part of that also is that the presence of a Japanese co-writer on the team, I think, signals like they knew it was a potential issue. They were, in fact, even trying to avoid these issues. And so I think us having conversations like this now with the sort of final product of the movie, 
they knew that this was coming and they knew that it was like a potential issue. And so I don't think having these conversations is even anything that the filmmakers themselves were not prepared for or at least conscious that this was coming because they were sort of, for lack of a better way to put it, defending against it in the very making of the movie. The word you're looking for is tokenism. And that is what, Nomura, I'm sorry, I mean no personal offense when I say this, and it probably sounds very harsh to anybody who worked on this film or cares to defend this film, but it is tokenism and it is being used to justify what to me is an egregious, egregious offense. I am interested to read and research more about Nomura's contribution, um, which um, I'd certainly like to think it wasn't a tokenistic thing, and I think he's a you know he's a so. smart guy. But I think all I can kind of assess at this point is just the reaction and the way that argument is being used, kind of like, oh, look, there's a Japanese guy on right. this. Shut up, you know, as if, as if, and and this is the thing, as if it's almost like. Asia, this broad thing, including, you know, Japan and, and China, and I guess in my case, I'm Chinese-American, and Asian-Americans are only allowed to have one opinion on this, you know? And it's like people have, and people have come at Jen and me with this, like, you know, Jen, first off, you're not a real Japanese person yes. because you're only Japanese-American mm-hmm. or whatever, so your opinion doesn't count. And um, they, But they've come at us with saying, like, you know, real, quote-unquote, real Asian people aren't upset about have this. No problem. The they way have they no say, problem with Ghost in the they Shell. They have either. no problem with Ghost in the Shell. And it's like, and there was a very smart piece written, I, I need to find the, I don't have the, the, the name of the writer right in front of me, but saying, like, you know, I don't care about that. You know, it's like there's room for more. You know, it's like just because the culture being fictionally, futuristically depicted doesn't have a problem with this movie, I'm completely free to have a problem with with the movie. And, you know, that cult, you know, and the Japanese culture, which is flooded with, you know, everyday quotidian positive depictions of their culture by Japanese filmmakers, this, you know, they don't feel this representational lack as much as we do. Yeah, they see Japanese faces Every day on TV and in film. So even when Wes Anderson makes a film that is, you know, perhaps mildly or even severely racist, let's say, it's just a curio. It's like, oh, that's cute. That's fine. You know, know, it's whatever. It's like, I enjoy it. Lighten up. You know, and it's like, well, we're, you know, and this thing speaks to, you know, our sort of fragmented identity as Asian Americans where sometimes we are made to, we feel or are made to feel like we're neither here nor there. And that's uh, not always the easiest place to be. No, and I, I do think that, like, it's funny to be told that I'm both too Japanese and not <laughs> Japanese enough yeah. to have an opinion about this movie. Because it's like, well, what do you, what am I allowed to, what perspective am I allowed to, to have on this? Um, and I do think that it just gives me more perspective, more perspective than like a, a native Japanese person, more perspective than a non-Asian American person. I, I don't know. It is it is interesting because like so much of the outcry over films like this and The Great Wall and, and that terrible television show, Iron Fist, comes from the Asian American community. And it's because we are the ones who grow up saturated with uh, media that does not reflect us. I think that that is a really important part of this conversation. Um, I hope that it's a a community that Hollywood and people like Wes Anderson start thinking about more. I mean, if his film is intended for an American audience, well, that also includes us and we have more insight into where he is failing utterly. Um, Can I now talk about Tracy? Yeah, let's do it. So Tracy is the most irksome character 
of several irksome characters in Isle of Dogs. Tracy is the American exchange student from Ohio who is blonde. She has very interesting character hair design. And can I jump in really please, quickly, Jen? Please um, jump in. Because I got the most interesting and thoughtful email I got oh. in response to Isle of Dogs all this weekend was from someone who um, identifies as a biracial Asian person. And she said that she and a lot of her biracial Asian friends assumed that Tracy was biracial. And I just want to raise this. Just I don't know either way. They obviously kind of are circumspect about this. But they said that they recognized in her features, you know, she does look kind of unusual. She's got this kind of big blonde hair. Her features, and I don't want to get into it. It's hard to have this discussion of yeah. what she looks like. But they said that, and she asked me, like, does this change your perspective on it at all? And I thought, maybe a little bit if that were the case. It's interesting that if they left it ambiguous, because how many underrepresented groups can you have? It's like, you know, the biracial Asian community, the biracial community in general, is underrepresented as well. And it's like, that's an interesting thing to include and throw in there. But it also sort of, I think, where we're getting at it, it sort of still smacks as uh, smacks Dude, of... Um, she's not biracial. I hate to break it to your very thoughtful reader, but... If that was the intention, then don't cast Greta Gerwig to voice her. Don't cast Greta Gerwig as the blonde American character who is the only person in all of Japan, including all of these Japanese people who still love their dogs, who seems to see any problem with this sort of like fascist conspiracy. She's the only character who takes action for in pursuit of justice to who rallies actual Japanese kids. Who could have done it themselves? They're Just too saying. Passive. They're too passive, Jen. It's, she is <laughs> a literal white hero. And for Wes Anderson to have not seen that or not cared is maybe the biggest problem. And that is where we're going to have to wrap it up here. Uh, my name is Mark Olson. I'm a writer at the Los Angeles Times. I, I write a newsletter called Indie Focus that, uh, on the world of movies in Los Angeles and beyond at latimes.com slash Indie Focus. Jen, where can people find you online? You can find me inundated by I Love Dogs superfan tweets at, at Jen Yamato. And I welcome the discourse. Me too. Uh, I'm Justin Chang. I'm a film critic for the Times. I write about many different types of movies, including this one. And you can find me on Twitter at Justin C. Chang. And thank you very much for reading and subscribing and finding us online. Hashtag I love cats too. 